welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. See if you recognize uh, these lines. I'm going to give you the first and last lines from a popular book. Congratulations, today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. Some of you preschool teachers are lighting up right now. The final words, you're off to the great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting. So get on your way. Do some of you recognize some of those lines? Um, it's from uh, a man named uh, Dr. Seuss. Um, he wrote a little book, Oh, the Places You Will Go. You probably had a kindergarten teacher read it to you. Maybe you got it for a high school graduation or a college graduation, and it encourages young people, Oh, the places you will go. You will scale mountains. You will move mountains, and you will turn the world upside down. Hold on to that thought for a second. Oh, the places we will go this morning. We will go to Thessalonica. We will go some 50 miles or so away from that to Berea. And then finally, we will find ourselves in Athens this morning. Oh, the places we will go. Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 9 tells us about Paul going to Thessalonica. We read there in Acts chapter 17 uh, verse 1 that they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom on three Sabbath days. So for three weeks, almost an entire month, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So as Paul enters and continues this missionary journey, as he goes into Thessalonica, he does as his custom. He goes into the synagogue and he continues to preach that Jesus is the Christ. He continues to preach the resurrected, resurrected Christ. And the Bible tells us that some were persuaded, that many people believed. Any, some of, even some of the, the Gentiles, the leading women, believed in the gospel and began to follow Paul and Silas. This is great news because we know as we'll see at the end of Acts chapter 17, that when the gospel is preached, there are several responses that we see. Uh, Some people put up a red light and say, no, thank you. Some people put up a yellow light and say, maybe let's continue to talk about this. And sometimes there's a green light. Let's go. I'm ready to follow Christ. There were some green lights here. People were ready to follow Christ. But immediately we see even with that same gospel preached, as some people follow and say, yes, I am ready to follow Christ. Jesus is king. I am persuaded. We read in Acts chapter 17, and you heard it a second ago, that some, particularly the Jews, were very jealous. They didn't like it that these Gentiles were coming to Christ, rather coming to Uh, rather coming to the synagogue and becoming Jewish. They felt like someone had imposed upon their territory. And we read here that these Jews are violently jealous. Let's listen again to how they respond in Thessalonica. The Jews were jealous. You know, many believe, look at verse 5. But some of the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. You don't want to be rabble. They formed a mob they don't know what to do, so they, 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 they result to kind of mob violence, and they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason because they thought the apostles had went there. They couldn't find them. They'd already left, and so they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the authorities. And, and I want you to hear what they accused these Christians of doing. I want you to hear this. All, all the places we will go, 
here in Thessalonica, listen to the accusation. These men have turned the world upside down, and now they're here. They've turned the world upside down, and they're acting against the decrees of Caesar. That's where I want us to start kind of pressing in this morning. As we work our way through the entire chapter, I want us to start pressing in this, that the accusation that the Jews and, and those who put up the red light and those who were upset about people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, the accusation that they accuse the apostles and the Christians, what, what, they are upsetting the world. Everything that we know and has made us comfortable, they are turning the world upside down. Or if you might want to say they are turning the world that is upside down, right side up, and they don't like it. And here's where I want us to start pressing in. When is the last time that you had the thought, man, I might just turn the world upside down? When is the last time you had that thought that that my life is tracking in such a way that one day I believe that I will turn the world upside down? That's why I read you the first and last line of that book a second ago. Yes, oh, the places will go. We're going several places this morning. That's a lot. Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, yeah, but when you read that book, you, you usually read it at a time in your life where you're very hopeful. And, and, and you look at all the future that is ahead, and, and you're hopeful that now that I'm done with college, now I'm really going to go out there, and, and, and you just might, and, and really turn the world upside down, be a world changer, be a difference maker. There are those times in our lives where we feel so, so hopeful, and even times in our life where we feel like this church is turning the city upside down. But it seems, I think you'll relate to this, that's where I want to kind of keep pressing here, that the older we get, if we're not careful, we can become, I think you'll follow with me here, we can become like disillusioned and wonder like, is my life really making that much of a difference? Have you felt that before? Like, like the hope of all the places you will go, you start to feel stuck. And like, this is the place that he's allotted for me? I, I, I'm not seeing it. And, and these mountains that you are to climb as Dr. Seuss talks about, you have these shaking knees and tired feet and life beckons and going places is expensive and it's wearisome and as the years tick on, I'm not trying to make you depressed this morning, I'm just trying to help you see this. Those places start to seem pretty ordinary and mundane and sometimes plain and you're frustrated and even if you do everything right, then the response of others seem to derail you and you realize that man, I'm, I'm not sure what we're accomplishing here. Have you, have you felt that before? Wondering where your life's going and if you're really going to turn the world upside down? Can I, can I really move mountains that, that I really contribute all to the world being turned upside down? I, I think this fiery hope of a promised future can become a dull disillusionment. It can also be true of churches, can it? You know, t- Tony Morgan is a, is a, a church revitalization guy I don't cling to everything he says, but he has a, a, a good little graph of where churches go. And, and he talks about the growth of a church and the life cycle uh, of a church. And I, and I think it's helpful here for a moment. He talks about, you know, a church being planted, then it grows, then it becomes established, then organized and institutionalized, and then what? 
And, and, and here's what he says. He says, you know, a church has a start. We started in 1954. We were a mission of another church down the road. And, and so the church starts, and then there's momentum growth, right? There's something new. There's something exciting. And everybody there, maybe some of you remember this, you're, you're on mission. You're, you're, you're living it. You're doing it. If we're going to reach the city, we've got to reach the city. They ain't coming to us. And you have this momentum growth, and then you start to put some strategy to it. Then you have like this strategic growth, and then you have this sustained growth. Like all your systems are working, and you're growing. Then you have this sustained health, and, and your church is vibrant. And then if you're not careful, you kind of start slipping into maintenance mode. And maybe you feel about this about your life. You kind of slip into maintenance mode, like personally. And then preservation mode, you have these inward priorities, and then even the church, they can find themselves on, on life support. And you start asking the question, we had this desire, oh, the places we will go, we will move mountains. And, and now you're wondering, like, are, are we accomplishing anything? I want us to hold that for a second and ask that question. Because what we see here, and here's where I want to keep going with this. Why are they turning the world upside down? They're on mission, Yeah. There's two things I think we see in Thessalonica that will carry us into Berea, that will carry us into Paul's sermon in Acts, in, in, um, in Athens. Listen to the accusation of this. They're turning the world upside down. The first thing, do you see this? How do we turn the world upside down? They, they go into this accusation. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar. This is verse 7. And they're saying that there is another King Jesus. So if you want to be a person who is turning the world upside down, something that was very recognizable about these Christians and something that, that must be very recognizable about us is that we receive our marching orders from someone else other than the government. We receive the marching orders from somewhere else other than ourselves and our own desires. We receive our marching orders from King Jesus, and he is the ultimate authority, and what he says goes. They answer to another, and these Jews realize that they are turning the world upside down because they are receiving their marching orders from King Jesus. If we want to turn the, church, the world upside down, we must, as individuals and as a church, receive our marching orders from King Jesus. We must have our priorities be his priorities. We must ask Jesus, what do you want us to do? And then we must do it. Because he is king. So, maybe we're starting to see, maybe, okay, this is not as overwhelming as we might. That is overwhelming because we realize we have to deny ourselves. But you start to realize that you don't necessarily have to be in Thessalonica. In the way Paul was, all Christians are called to make Jesus their king. So they're turning the world upside down. They're, they're proclaiming Jesus as king. But, but notice where they get their power from. What we'll see in all of this is what Paul continues to preach is the resurrected Christ. They receive their power from the resurrected Christ. He says that here, that in verse 3, he's explaining in the synagogue and proving that it was necessary. Do you see it here in verse 3? It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, this Jesus is the anointed one. So, so follow along with me. If we are to turn the world upside down, Jesus is our king, and our power does not come from ourselves. Our power comes from a resurrected 
Christ. Because in his resurrection, it verifies his claim that Jesus is God. And if he is God, he is king. In the resurrection, we have hope and we have assurance. In the resurrected we, re- resurrection, we have the fear of death removed. In the resurrection, Jesus is established as the uh, ultimate judge. He is the judge of the living and the dead. He has the power, the, the keys of death and Hades. He is the righteous one, the only righteous one. He is God's anointed one, and and he alone is righteous. And so he alone can judge. In the resurrection, we have the source of power for the transformed life. We've been praying it this morning. The reason that we are living and breathing and alive in Christ this morning because we were dead in our trespasses and sin and we have been raised to life in Jesus Christ. The resurrection power has met you and raised you to life. And this resurrection power for you are buried with Christ and raised with him in the resurrection. You are already resurrected in Christ and one day we'll be bodily resurrected with him. And that resurrection power is still transforming us today. We go with the power of a resurrected Christ. The resurrection is not just an historical event that they preach. It's the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Even Paul would say that if Christ was not resurrected, all of this is in vain. But he has been. So it's not. So this holds significance, and they know that because if Jesus is king, then they must come to Christ, and they must respond, and so some respond. So in Thessalonica, we learn something, that Christians are called to be people who turn the world upside down. And we see that we turn the world upside down as Jesus is our king, and and going in the power of the resurrection. Oh, the places we will go. Maybe they're more hopeful now. The life is not so much mundane. If you are a Christian, you are resurrected and have the resurrected Christ in you and changing you. So they go to Berea. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. That's a pattern. Paul goes into the synagogue and starts to reason. Now, these Jews were more noble. I'm not saying they were more righteous, but they were more thoughtful about Paul coming in. They didn't just deny what... He was saying, um, they gave reason, and here's what they do. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them, so different responses, believed. There are some green lights. People believed. And not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But the Jews from Thessalonica learned of the word of the Lord and proclaimed by Paul at Berea. And they came too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. They followed him and continued to cause this ruckus. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted... Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. At Berea, these Jews are more noble. Notice something else about a life that is, trans- a life that is turning the world upside down, true nobility. Where does that come from? Here's what we learn about the church in Berea. The Scripture was their ultimate authority. They had a king. It was Jesus. They had the power of the resurrected Christ. And they had a word from the resurrected Christ. They knew what the resurrected Christ commanded and what this king had said. Their authority was Scripture. That's all we'll say about Berea for now. 
You see something very cool at the end there that you could build upon. I just want to point that out because I, I think it's, it's, it's cool that they send Paul to Athens and Paul, Silas and Timothy go somewhere else and Paul says, send them to me as soon as possible. We see the family of faith, the brotherhood of believers that they couldn't stand to be alone. They wanted to be together. So on to Athens we go. In Thessalonica, we see a few things about turning the world upside down. And in Berea, we see that uh, these Bereans had the Scripture as authority. Of, if we want to be a people who are turning the world upside down, we must believe that the Scripture is the very Word of God, every jot and tittle of it. And we must believe it and live it and obey it and love it and find our life in it. So... They trust the king. They believe in his power. They believe in his word alone. And so now Paul goes to Athens. And I think in Athens, in this place, the final place that we'll go this morning, we start to get maybe, bring it into focus. How does all of this come, come together? We get a clear picture of, of turning the world upside down. Paul went into the synagogue, it says. Look at verse 16. Now Paul was waiting for them at Athens. He couldn't wait for his brothers to get back with him. But he continued on mission. Listen to this. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day, those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Notice this about Athens. It was a, it was a, a very educated place. It was a, place, a philosophical place where a lot of education and thought came out of. And some said, some of these Stoics and Epicureans and those in the marketplace that Paul was talking to, listen to this. He says, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection." So not only were these people of Athens, these philosophical thinkers, they were very religious. Some people used to say that it was easier to meet a god in Athens than it was a person because they worshipped so many gods. And they took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus. He said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. They were interested in new teaching. Do you know a culture like that? That is mesmerized with anything new. Don't give us that, that gospel of, of Christ. We want something new. If you can find us something new to worship, something cutting edge to worship, we'll give our lives away for that, and we will promote that at all costs. You start, start talking about Jesus, we're going to shut you down. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? Anything new, we will believe. So, so they're kind of, their interest is piqued, not because they want to hear about Jesus, because they want to hear something new, something catchy, something they haven't heard before. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time, here it is, and nothing except telling and hearing something new. Perhaps you know a culture like that. And so as Paul goes in Athens, he's turning the world upside down. Notice, we're telling what he does. Notice what he doesn't do. Sometimes as we walk into a culture and you, you see all these idols, things that they're worshiping, perhaps your, your first response is to be exasperated and kind of turn your nose up and say, what a bunch of fools. 
not realizing that our own hearts are the same way. As John Calvin said, that our hearts are like idols factories. We're always looking to worship something other than the true God. We struggle with the same thing. We may struggle with worshiping cultural Christianity rather than worshiping Christ himself. We're, we're there with the idea of going to church, but not actually following Christ himself. So before you turn your nose up, exasperated at a culture, realize that this is your own heart, and the only reason that you have bowed down to the true God is because he's opened your eyes to do it, and he's raised you to life. So we need to go in with humility into a culture that's different than ours, a culture that is upside down, when we know the right way up. So he goes into Athens. And let me say, maybe you're caught right now and you're like, man, that's me. Like I have bought in hook, line, and sinker to whatever culture has taught me. I mean, because know this, uh, you're being discipled every day by what you watch. Uh, Young people, you got to know that as well. You're being discipled. People are telling you and pushing an agenda upon you. And this is not some kind of you know, weird conspiracy theorists telling you this. This is just, there's nothing new under the sun. And people will try to exploit you. And it's still happening today. But we don't turn our nose up. We go into the culture. And notice what Paul does. A man who has had his world turned upside down on the road to Damascus. Maybe you need to start asking that question. Has your world been turned upside down by Christ? You were going one way, and now Christ has turned you around by his grace. Paul had been, so he had a heart for the lost. He goes into Athens. Let's make a few observations about Athens and living as those who are turning the world upside down. The first thing I want you to see with Athens, with Paul here, is Paul saw. He he went into Athens, and yes, he went into the synagogue, but he also went into the marketplace and And what Paul saw as he walked through the streets of Athens was a bunch of idols. Here's the thing about having your world turned upside down. And you know this if you're you're a Christian this morning. You start to see things differently, don't you? Maybe things you you were once blind to, you now see differently. The way you act and the way you see people interact with certain cultural idols, now you're in tune with that, that God, by his grace, has given you the ability to see things that you once didn't see. The very culture that you were once ingrained in, God has opened your eyes, and now you can see what they are worshiping as idols, and they will become like them, and these idols will lead to their death. And so he saw what was going on in the city. And, and not only did he see, he didn't become exasperated and turn his nose up, Verse 16, so maybe you want to underline this in his Bible, in your Bible. Verse 16, it says this. His spirit was provoked. His spirit was moved by what he saw. His, his spirit was provoked what he, by what he saw in Athens, and it just wasn't right. I hope and pray that we're not, not turning the world upside down because we have been lulled to sleep by culture in such a way that we no longer are able to see the idols in our own life and our own culture and our hearts are no longer provoked and burdened by those idols. Another way to say it is that Paul saw, he observed the culture around him. 
And what, what was it that led to Paul's spirit being, being provoked? He noticed that the city was full of idols, and Paul walked through the city observing the culture. Maybe it's something like a prayer walk or a prayer drive as you drive your car from here to your home or your home to work or whatever it might be, or through the city. You start to see, oh, that this is what this culture is worshiping. And, and as he observed the culture, he was broken by the brokenness and sin that he saw in this culture. If we want to be used by God to turn the world upside down, it starts with us seeing and recognizing what's going on in our culture and even in our own hearts. It starts with simply opening our eyes to be observant of the culture around us. It starts with us asking God, help me to see this world as you see it. One writer says we will never be able We'll never be people whom God uses to turn the world upside down if we can continue spending so much time on Netflix and social media because we'll never look up long enough to see the things that God wants us to see around us. We'll be so discipled by our culture that we won't be able to see up and down anymore. The upside down world will seem right side up and we won't think we have to turn the world upside down. We won't see, as C.S. Lewis says, that there are no ordinary people that we have never talked to mere mortals, that everyone is immortal, either for immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. We won't see people as God sees them. So Paul sees, if we turn the world upside down, we must see as God sees. We must be burdened with the things of God. Number two, in Athens, this world turning upside down, man where Jesus is king, the word of God is authority, and the power is the resurrected Christ, as we saw in Thessalonica and Berea. Not only does he see, he's strategic. He continues his strategy of, of going to the synagogues and, and speaking to the Jews. He does that, but he also goes to the Aragopagus. He also goes to this place, this cultural center of learning. He also goes to the place of education. He also goes uh, to the marketplace. He goes to the places of influence. He goes to the Stoics. He goes to the Epicureans. The Epicureans, they wanted to enjoy life, but everything in moderation. Too much excess, they thought, led to dissatisfaction. They were refined and sophisticated in their pursuit of pleasure. Do you know a culture like that? Some were Stoic, that everything that happens is just kind of by, by chance, que sera, sera, what will be, will be, and they all lived for the here and now, loving new teaching. But everything was here and now. And it was strategic. He went to those places where those people were, even those living for the here and now. He probably sought to understood, understand why do they worship these idols? What do they believe? What makes them tick? He was strategic in where he went. He was thoughtful in where he went. And he spoke. He saw. He was strategic. And Paul spoke. The Bible says that he reasoned with them. He dialogued with them. He opened his mouth and began to talk with them and started to understand what they believed. And then he explained to them. So he saw, strategically went, he spoke. Spoke what? He got the conversation to Jesus. Notice what he does. What he sees and what Christ has done for him, it causes Paul to get people to Jesus. 
He has turned my life right side up. And so he didn't walk through the streets exasperated. He saw these people. He was burdened for these people. He strategically went to these people. He spoke to the people. And he asked the question, how can I get them to Jesus? Let's briefly take a look. Verse 22. And so Paul, teach us about what you know. We want to learn these things. And Paul said, men of Athens... I perceive in every way that you are religious. He found common ground, didn't he? I perceive that you are religious. You, you do want to know what to worship. I, I see that in you. That's not necessarily a bad desire. So he starts to build that bridge. For as I passed along, I observed, I saw the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription. So he finds this common ground. Now Paul's going for the bridge. He's going to get the conversation to Jesus. He said, I noticed that you have this one altar, and it's, it's to an unknown God. They would see this as humility. They worshiped everything. They loved new teaching. Perhaps there's something we don't know. And so we'll worship this generic unknown God as well to make sure we have all of our bases covered. I, I see that. What therefore you worship as unknown I am here to proclaim to you. I am here to make that Christ known. The one God you are not worshiping with all these idols is the true God, and I want to tell you about him. Isn't this beautiful? Someone who turns the world upside down sees and strategically goes and speaks, and as they speak, they get the conversation to Jesus. The God who made the world and everything in it. So we prayed this during our prayer time. Being Lord of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of everything. There's no king but Jesus. Does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. This is what Paul is telling them. And here's what we need to see this morning, is that as they create these idols fashioned in their own image, in their own imagination, they are giving life to those gods. But Paul is saying the true God is not like that. He is not worshipped by human hands. You don't give life to God. God gives life to you. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You are not breathing life into these dead idols. Indeed, you are becoming like them as you worship them. But there is one God who actually breathes life into our dead bones. And this God has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And he determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God has you here for a reason, Athenians. To hear this, to know this. God has you for for, for a reason, people of Riverside, for you to hear this and know this. God has you here for a reason that, verse 27, you should seek God. And perhaps feel your way toward them and find him. Yes, he's not far from each one of us. God is near. And then he quotes their own poets. He, he knows their language. He speaks their language. This is one of their poets. He said, in him we live and move and have our being. They're probably thinking, oh, he knows us. He understands us. What we desire, and he's preaching to us the very thing that we desire, for indeed we are his offspring, being then God's offspring, he says. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or the imagination of man. This God is not like this. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he calls for response, doesn't he? He's not just 
preaching truth. He's calling, we must believe this truth. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this, is, and this he has given assurance to us to all. Here it is, by raising him from the dead. He gets to the resurrected Christ. It's all in vain if it's not because of the resurrection. And so Paul concludes his sermon. He calls for a response. He preaches the resurrected Christ, the message that turns the world upside down. In a culture obsessed with knowledge and power, the resurrection challenges their understanding of reality. It verifies the claim of Christ, as I said earlier. It removes the fear of death. It establishes him as the ultimate judge, and it provides the source for transformed living. The resurrection is not just a historical event, but the cornerstone of the faith. And so that Paul boldly proclaims this life-altering event, and he calls for action. People will listen all day long, but the gospel calls for action. Jesus must be king. We must repent of our sins and trust in him. And Jesus is king. If the world is to be turned upside down, we must believe him according to his word. We must believe that we must be resurrected, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. And so people respond again, but notice this, that us turning the world upside down is not dependent upon people's responses. But perhaps we're not turning the world upside down because we're not calling people to respond. And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, red light, don't want to hear any more of it. Others said, we'll hear you again about this, yellow light, Let's continue talking about this, and maybe like the Bereans, we can go through Scripture and figure this out. You'll meet all of this as you call people to respond to the gospel. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him. Green light, believe, among those whom were, uh, these two were mentioned here, a woman named uh, Demarius and other with him, and some joined and, and believed. And so let's go ahead and, and close this out. The conclusion here, what is your purpose, are, are, we're called to turn the world upside down. And maybe you remember as a kid hearing the book, oh, the places you will go, and maybe you've lost that hope that perhaps we will turn the world upside down, but I think by asking these questions, we'll be able to determine, are, are we living in, in that manner? Who's your king? Who do you answer to? Yourself, the culture, other, who are you answering to? Who's your king? What speaks as your authority? Is it the Word of God, like the Bereans? Is the Word of God your authority? What do you see as you go into culture? Is your spirit provoked within you by the way our culture is going? And do you turn your nose up? Do you see it provoked by it strategically? Go and tell people and build bridges and point them to the resurrected Christ. Are you like the one who finds a treasure in the field, and you sell everything for it to go find that treasure, to, to have that treasure? Are, are you like a merchant looking for fine pearls, and you find that great pearl, and you sold everything and bought it? What places will you go this week? What will you see? What will you say? Who is your king? What is your authority? How you answer these questions determines whether or not You and me and this church will be a place that turns the world upside down. I'm going to end with this. I was challenged by this recently. 
And there's one application. Let's make it this. I can't remember where I heard this, to be honest, but I, but I remember it being convicted by it. A, a preacher asked, speaking of turning the world upside down, if every person that we were either witnessing to or even so, every person that we were praying to be saved were saved this week, what would that look like? That made me step back for a second. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm praying enough for people to be saved, and in particular people to be saved. If every person you were building a bridge for the gospel to were to come to Christ and come over that bridge, how many would it be? And that personally convicts me. I don't know about you. Maybe you're good with that. <laughs> but I'm thinking maybe the reason we don't turn the world upside down like we're called to is because we're not asking the one with resurrection power to actually do it. And maybe we're not praying for specific people that, God, would you raise him from the dead for you have resurrection power? God, would you use me to build that bridge, the gospel, so that they might know Christ? I know some of you, maybe you don't go many places. Oh, the places you will go, the places you go might not, right now might be Bro Martin Church. And maybe just church. That might be all where you go right now. But you still have great purpose in this. Plead people's names before the throne of God. God, would you save them? Plead for your city before the Lord. Plead for the checkout person at Bromar, or wherever you might go. Oh, the places you will go. May we go with the gospel. May we go, and may it be said of Riverside, those people are turning this place upside down. Let's pray.